To mark the 10-year anniversary of Tunisia's revolution, the Centre d'études Maghrébines in Tunis and the Centre d'études Maghrébines in Algérie are pleased to organize a series of podcasts focusing on Tunisian politics at home, in the Maghreb, and the wider global south, in both the contemporary period, but also in the long durée, and through the lens of scholarly and cultural production. Included in this series are podcast conversations with Nadia Chiari, political cartoonist and creator of Willis from Tunis, a discussion between professors Lisa Anderson and Tarek Kahlawi on the weight and limits of history in framing contemporary Tunisian politics, and today's lecture by Dr. Idris Jabari on memory, remembering, and mourning in the Maghreb since the Tunisian Revolution. Idris is Al Maktoum Assistant Professor in Middle East Studies at Trinity College, Dublin. His research focuses on North African cultural history and Arab thought. Idris completed his doctorate at the University of Oxford with a dissertation on the production of critical thought in the Maghreb in the 1960s and 70s, focusing on the key works of Hisham Jait and Abdallah Lawi. He has held a postdoctoral fellowship at the American University of Beirut with the prestigious Arab Council for Social Sciences to study the dynamics of intellectual and cultural exchanges between the Maghreb and the Mashrek, and an Andrew Mellon postdoctoral fellowship at Bodwin College, where he taught Middle East history. Idris has published on the intellectual projects of several North African intellectual figures and on the theory and practice of Arab intellectual engagements in public affairs. He also works on collective memory in the Arab world, especially its role for reconciliation processes and transitional justice. He's currently preparing his first monograph on the Maghreb, Arab thought, and cultural modernity. Part of this research is found in this podcast series, where in episode 94, Idris presented on the student question in Tunisia between the attraction of leftism and the steamroll of authoritarian paternalism. We're very pleased to have Idris back with us here today and look forward to hearing this new aspect of his critical ongoing research. Idris. Thank you. In the last days of 2020, the leftist former militant of the Perspective movement, Gilbert Nakash, passed away. He was an icon of the Tunisian left, nicknamed affectionately Papi for being slightly older and wiser than the young radicals who populated the movement in the 60s and 70s. His passing led to an outpouring of grief from social media to the country's national media. The idea of holding a national funeral for him was even floated. In a highly moving piece, Professor Mohamed Salah Omri situates Naqash in a number of crucial themes from imprisonment to torture and forgiveness and the crucial positioning of Arab Jews towards the Palestine question. Omri also reminds us that we must not forget his important legacy as a writer, seeing as Naqash left a rich body of novels, poetry and memoirs. The first was Cristal in 1982, which he wrote in prison on cigarette papers of the same name. On the occasion of his passing so close to the revolution's anniversary, we are reminded of the importance of culture in revolutions. Another Tunisian literary scholar, Abir Krefa, highlights how writing and fighting for political change often went hand in hand, especially on the left. Under Tunisian authoritarianism, she writes, literature and culture were forms of political mobilization by other means. In fact, this relationship between culture, arts, and resistance is a well-known one in the Arab region. In Egypt, Iraq, and beyond, dissidents have stood up to crushing oppression armed with just a pen and paper. Cultural militancy allowed for the imagination of alternative futures while keeping the possibility of political change alive. Nurigana has shown convincingly how the roots of the Tunisian revolution can be traced back to a tradition of dissident film, literature, and rap music that gestated under the surface for years, 
until it bloomed in 2011. On the 10 year anniversary of the Tunisian revolution, there's another dimension that has occupied my thoughts, especially on this particular year and its unusual circumstances. After 2011, there has been a sudden and an outpouring of memory in the public sphere. I saw it every time I visited a bookstore in Tunis. I witnessed a slew of memoirs from former leftists. Alongside those, several Tunisian academics and journalists wrote chronicles relating the days of the revolution as they lived them. They felt it was a liberation of speech. Then on the bookshelves of the new releases, there was a hybrid genre of family histories of past Tunisian figures who had been relegated or neglected by official historiography, such as famous doctors or trade unionists. Finally, several former regime stalwarts and state figures released quote-unquote self-justificatory memoirs of their time in power to ensure that history with a capital H remembered them fondly. I would promptly acquire as many of these books as I could on my visits and devoured them on the flight back after a session of pleading and bargaining with the checking agents at the airport to avoid any surcharge. What do these memoirs mean? From a historian's perspective, they tell us something about how people construct their relationship to time. In the 2003 Tim Burton movie, Big Fish, the main protagonist, Ed Bloom Sr., explained to the audience, and he says, they say when you meet the love of your life, time stops, and that's true. What they don't tell you is that when it starts again, it moves extra fast to catch up. Similarly, the dizzying pace of these new releases was reminiscent of a hectic desire to make up for lost time. Under Ben Ali's authoritarian rule, these former activists and prisoners had to keep their memories under wraps. Suddenly, they rushed to record these memories for posterity. Similar feelings were expressed in an Al Jazeera documentary on the Tunisian revolution, where we saw an interview with the blogger Aziz Amami, who described the immediate aftermath of Ben Ali's departure in January 2011. And he used a telling physical metaphor. He says, try to take your hand from here. Try to do something like this so the blood can't pass. After 15 minutes, let the blood pass and feel. That was the feeling at this moment. It's more than the liberation feeling. It's a feeling that I think everybody should experience at least once in their lives." End quote. And as we well know, the past is always made sense from the present. And so these initial remarks helped me situate my particular interest in the Tunisian revolution 10 years on. And I ask, what has this event meant for historians? How have the events of 2011 and their aftermath impacted the way we think about the past and write those stories. I remember early conversations with my professors, a Polish historian in London and a historian of Algeria in Oxford who would become my doctoral advisor. Both of them reflected on this moment as historians would by pondering whether we would soon gain access to government records as archives to write the region's histories. As Qaddafi fell in Libya, troves of government surveillance offices were discovered. And we wondered if, or perhaps we hoped, that the regime's meticulous reporting on their people could, ironically, serve the historians to write histories of people. Perhaps democratization would start from historiography. 
This hope did not materialize, at least not as expected. There are a few fledging efforts to transform the National Archives, as Huda Ben Hamouda writes, or the Instance Vérité Réconciliation, to which I will return later. Instead, what we have seen is the eruption of Tunisian cult collective memory as the currency, the crucial currency of this transformation. And so I asked myself, what were these memoirs? What kind of relationships to the past do they build? How have they evolved and moved with the transition during the past decade? What are the possibilities this opens up for historians? Do they allow us to revisit this long silenced past and retell histories that have long been kept silenced? Memory and memoirs require a few notes of clarification. Among the different historical sources available to historians, I've always had a soft spot for memoirs. They contain a recollection of the past and an attempt to make sense of a life at a moment nearing its conclusion. Sometimes these authors rely on diaries or other traces of the past contained previous to the events that furnished the text. In other cases, they're just reconstructed recollections from the present looking back. Back when I was a student, several years before the Arab Spring, the quote-unquote serious historians who were my professors frequently discredited the use of memoirs to write historical narratives, especially in comparison to archival material, they said, because the memory is so unreliable and because historical actors often use memoirs to influence the reader's judgments. At best, they said, they can serve as a useful top-up to formal sources. Otherwise, they should only be read as literature, they finished saying assertively. Despite these warnings, my interest in memoirs has been undeterred for reasons I was slowly uncovering this past decade. It felt like a privilege to gain access to the past from their unique vantage points, like a time travel vessel accompanied with the captain at every turn sharing their deepest secrets. One range of questions opened another one. One that has often been left unthought in light of the overwhelming nature of the task at hand. The urgency to write and share testimonies and to manage one's place in the eyes of history has been motivated by the perspective of the greatest form of oblivion, death. And so I reflect on memoirs as a format containing within them the possibilities for mourning after remembrance. What is the relationship between the individual who may or may not leave a testimony and that memory itself? How do we reconcile the two of them? What about those who pass, taking with them their experiences and perspectives on the past, leaving only a fleeting souvenir and unresolved relationships with those who remain? These questions raise a multitude of stakes and considerations, and as my introductory remarks make it clear, I come at them from a very personal angle. As a young Maghrebi historian, they give me access to ignored histories of people. These are not just any stories. Prior to 2011, they have haunted the lives and the stories of people across North Africa. The Tunisian revolution stemmed from a desire to be seen, acknowledged, respected, as embodied in the call for karama, or dignity. Along those lines comes a desire to reconcile national histories with all its facets by digging deeper into this recent past. And looking back at the past decade, the meaning of the revolution goes beyond simply a political process. 
that invites us to engage in this discovery of the self, unfulfilled aspirations, the search for new possibilities. And luckily for me, I had the opportunity to explore these questions in practice during each one of my periodic visits to Tunis. I first discovered the Tunisian perspective movement in the spring of 2012. I was an early doctoral student, and as I walked back and forth on Bourguiba Avenue, I popped into the bookstores and spent a considerable amount on books. I was fascinated by the range and topics on offer, and I bought more books than I could ever hope to read, that I can admit. Two books that I picked up in those early days were actually released a few years before the Arab uprisings, and they opened a fascinating history to me. They were Mohamed Sharfi's Le Combat pour les Lumières and Gilbert Nakache's Qu'as-tu fait de ta jeunesse? I read these memoirs with keen interest as they both told stories of youthful radicalism, prison, and a quest for meaning during Tunisia's contemporary history. These two founders of the movement illustrate that bubbling atmosphere that we love so much, from the theoretical influences coming from Paris to the social abolition in Tunisia and their political commitment in favor of these grand causes such as the Vietnam question. It was only later through an article in Jeune Afrique that I learned about the contentious history that plagued this radical left, a legacy of mutual recriminations that stretched back to the late 60s over the issue of presidential pardons and the role that these two memoirs played in it. By the time of my next visit to Tunis a few months later, I knew exactly what to ask the bookstore owner for. And so I acquired the memoirs of Fethi ibn Haj Yahya's Al Habs Kaddab, Wal Hayy Ruh, published in 2009, Muhammad Salah Flis, Am Hamd al Attal, published in 2010. On yet another visit, I acquired Sherif Farjani's Prison et Liberté, 2014, and more recently, Azuddin Hazgi's Nadarat Ummi, My Mother's Glasses. The latter group of memoirs were part of what I call the second generation of perspective activists, those who ascended after the Tunis trials of 1968 to replace their jailed predecessors. They too would be arrested in great numbers and imprisoned from 72 to 75 as the authorities sought to dismantle the radical left and they would most of them be released by 1979. Along the way, there were several public events held to celebrate the perspective heritage at the National Library in Tunis in late 2013, at the Manuba faculty in early 2014 on Nesma television and numerous other occasions, often driven by the association of former perspectivists themselves, especially the younger generation who are still active nowadays. Oftentimes, I was able to see the individuals whose books I had read. I stood merely a few feet away from them after having shared their history through the medium of the page and the narrative. What all these novels had in common is that their authors spent time in prison. They share a remarkable amount of detail and lift the lid on what prison was like, the notorious Burj al-Rumi. This is important in the context of a silenced memory trying to come alive. Political prisoners were an open secret for decades in Tunisia, but they were kept quiet out of fear and cultural norms for propriety. Hence, Talking about prison can have a liberating and therapeutic effect. Prison is also where they built their close friendships, where they continued their political education and commitment and continued the work of thinking 
a new Tunisian path towards socialist development. More than that, as Naqash stated recently, prison is where he became a writer. As Brahim al-Gabi writes, prison literature grew after the Arab Spring. It was the byproduct of an opening public sphere and a desire to uncover silenced traumas. These memoirs belong there, and the stories told by Naqash, Farjani, Benhaj Yahya, and others are inspiring. Behind bars, they struggle to maintain their dignity and selfhood. On several occasions, they organized protest movements and hunger strikes to ensure they would receive humane treatment from the prison guards. Sometimes they worked and they were able, for example, to receive books and newspapers. They organized themselves, they had debates, they prepared reports, and it seems they appeared even more politically active than Tunisians outside those bars. The years they spent behind bars were not lost or wasted. Shortly after their release, several activists, such as Ahmed Outmani, went on to fight for the reform of Tunisian prison systems and fight for human rights from the Tunisian League to Amnesty International. Several decades after their release from prison, the Tunisian transition that was taking place in the past decade sought to tackle the painful legacy of state violence by launching a truth commission alongside the other negotiations for a new constitution, the holding of elections, accountability, and so on. Siham ben Sidrin had the difficult task of presiding this Instance Vérité et Dignité from 2014. They heard testimonies of these state violence and made recommendations to achieve national reconciliation. And in fact, the testimonies from former perspectivists were a central component of this Tunisian effort. However, as I soon found out by watching these public audiences, their testimonies were remarkably similar to the memoirs I was reading around the same time. Take Gilbert Nakash, for example, who gave an hour-long testimony during the first public hearing on the 18th of November 2016 that was broadcast on television. Already advanced in age, he had to be helped to the podium by others. Once the microphone was turned on, his revolutionary drive shone bright and the audience was mesmerized. He began by saluting all those Tunisians who resisted authoritarian rulers, from his comrades, such as Nordib and Khidr, or those who came out in 2011, and he framed all of them in a similar vein. In his intervention, Naqash gave a riveting account of his three experiences of arrest, torture, and prison. And as he said, it did not work, it did not deter him because we get used to it and we know things are going to improve. That hour-long intervention did more than that. He built on his individual experience to draw a portrait of the Bourguibist system of rule in Tunisia. He noted the absurdity of repression, but also the president, who had a vendetta against the leftists because he, the president, was the ultimate pragmatist who adapted while they, the leftists, had a plan, an ideology. Such was their misunderstanding that he only saw in them people who wanted to take his seat, as Naqash explains. And I realized his account was reminiscent of the same story he told in Catufé de ta jeunesse, published seven years prior. It even contained the same anecdotes that fascinated me years earlier. For example, he remembered when the prisoners realized they could recycle their guards' smoked cigarettes for themselves. In the memoirs, I read this anecdote with sadness, but during the public testimony, Naqash recounted it with glee. 
What was more surprising was the amount of coverage Naqash chose to devote to his life before prison and before politics, namely his return to Tunisia in the early years of its independence. In the early 60s, before Perspective, he worked as an agriculture engineer and in the testimony, he depicted the intricacies of office politics with a small p and his disagreements over technical matters ranging from hydraulics to mechanization and so on. Another witness might have chosen to speak only about familiar themes on the day, arrest, interrogation, torture, imprisonment, and the aftermath, the difficult reintegration in society, and so on. In fact, many others who followed him adopted this model, but not Nakash. Perhaps a decision to spend so much time on his life before prison during an audience for a truth commission might have stemmed from a simple and understandable desire to share one's life. Or perhaps there was more to it. This takes us to the reasons or the motivations that push these leftists to write memoirs in the first place. And I turn to a talk that Mohammed Salah Omri gave recently in 2018 on dissident writing, law and transitional justice in Tunisia. There he mapped all the forms and strategies there was a fundamental choice between whether one would proceed through individual recollection or collective remembrance and testimonies. Or there was another choice to be made between writing during the events versus writing later on in life. And finally, how these different actors position themselves towards the question of future forgiveness and justice. Overall, as Amri concluded in his intervention, we find in these testimonies what he calls an oscillation between the urgency to testify and the allure of style, in simpler terms, between law and literature. But perhaps I think there's a third option. Beyond law and literature, there was history. Though I also recognize that these realms have porous borders, they often overlap with each other. And this brings me back to my own reading of these memoirs and what I took from them. Beyond the experience of prison, it was for their ability to tell me about Tunisia in the 60s and the 70s, to gain access to the motivations and the imaginations of those who wanted to change the world. And here I want to talk about Fatih ben Hajjahia's book, Al Habs Kathab. The title was translated in French as La Gamelle et le Couffin, which refers to the metal tins where they would, uh, that would serve as plates and also the regular baskets of food that families would bring to prisoners. And the story adopts a non-linear structure. It starts with the moment of his release from prison in 79 and a surreal encounter wearing jeans with Burgiba. But then he returns to his youth and his first step in politics. And I'd like to read a passage from his book that I translated myself, which capture uh, what I find so compelling about these novels. He writes, the first expression of my political consciousness stretches back to the movement of February 1972. I was in final year of high school at the Khaznadar Lycée. I was very quick to integrate to my surroundings thanks to the football and this street culture that I acquired since childhood in the working class neighborhoods near Montfleury. We were a bunch of teenagers in front of this high school, waiting for the last ring of the bell to join class with reluctance. When a handsome young man and a stunning young woman approached us, they asked if we were aware of the political trial against Ahmed Ben Othman, Simon Lelouch, and many others that we knew as well as an old Zaytuni would know Darwin's theories. 
They told us that the government was plotting for a selective higher education policy and that after securing our baccalaureate, something they presented as a given, we would become nothing more than an unemployed lot and a bunch of undesirable citizens since that plan was obviously only going to benefit the kids of the bourgeoisie. The young woman spoke and she was so pretty and elegant that in our eyes, she was above any kind of social class. And since we hated the kids of the bourgeoisie, for us, daddy's kids or homosexuals, a lot of them, I quickly expressed my desire to attend their secret meeting planned for the next day. The rendezvous was fixed downtown in Lafayette." End quote. What follows in the next pages is an account of Tunisian youth in the early 70s. He became a militant or a political activist as he progressed to the university in Tunis, where he confesses, I attended general assemblies more than my lectures on literature. He felt freed from petty high school authority and rules. He enjoyed the gender mixity, the endless discussions on the plight of the Palestinians or the Vietnamese, and how activism facilitated his integration. There was a certain romantic aura attached to the perspective leaders. Faced with the threat of political arrest, they went on the ground and they would appear periodically as messiahs in the faculty. They rose on tables to speak passionately. And he soon became one of them, as he says, before I even finished reading the basics of Marxism. But he too soon after had to flee abroad to avoid the police. Later, on his return to Tunisia, he was caught and joined the other perspectivist in Borja-Romi, and that's where he first met Papi. So what does this mean? From one memoir to the next, I gained access to the silent histories of these young idealists who were taken out of commission in the prime of their life by a cruel regime. While these testimonies gave content to transitional justice, they also seek to tell stories. In many regards, they echoed the youth of 2011, and we must understand the lasting legacy of perspective on Tunisian society, culture, and politics. Many of them, upon their release from prison, joined civil society and contributed to its dynamism. Islamist students on campuses took inspiration from leftist methods of mobilization and opposition, as Mikhail Ayari studied. This group, the perspectivist, was also the byproduct of Bourguiba's social policies after Tunisian independence from gender equality to modernity, education, and so on, and many see themselves as his, quote-unquote, legitimate children, who agreed with him on several issues but fought him on his bourgeois bent and authoritarianism. Hopefully, now foreign observers who started to suddenly take an interest in this small and quiet country will have a motivation to look beyond authoritarian rulers and Islamist opposition and dive deeper into the 1990s to make sense of the country's social and political dynamics. On the road to democratization during this past decade, the next step was for them to join Tunisian national history. Ordinary stories like those of Fethib and Haj Yahya has the potential to transform Tunisian historiography, which has long been written around Bourguiba and Bourguibism, or as the historian Abdelhamid Heniya describes, it has been captured by the state, which means that it this history always writes with the nation and politics in mind. In recent years, there have been alternative histories published that present themselves as counter-narratives from the silenced histories of the Bays, of Yusufism, and so on. However, those histories only appear interested in adding their group, their perspective to the national canon, 
rather than to change the way this whole history is thought about and written. And so I ask, could a true social history of Tunisia emerge that starts and ends with its people? And I believe that the history of the Perspectiviste can take us there. Their memoirs have the potential to usher in plural histories and to change how it is written going forward. But there remain uh, many questions and limitations, I have to say. On top of the list is that for now, these memoirs have been male-dominated. So there's this famous picture of uh, perspectivists at the Borja Romi jail. It's doing the rounds on social media, and it shows them huddled up, smiling with their shaggy hair and mustaches, wearing several sweaters. This picture captures the romantic quality of the struggle. One could hardly imagine that these were leftist prisoners under an authoritarian regime. And I even remember reading somewhere that this picture was smuggled out by a sympathetic prison guard. In the background of the picture, you can see the famous Couffin. And in many ways, this romantic image omits the wives, the mothers, the daughters, who often had to travel for hours to bring these baskets, who had to face harassment from the police, the stigma of association with these leftists. And this reminded me a lot of the mothers of the disappeared movement in Argentina in the 1980s. Adding to the families were the female activists themselves and their stories. Since Perspective contained men and women activists, and they advocated for gender parity, many of the latter were similarly imprisoned, subjected to torture, just as their male colleagues. Their testimonies do not dominate the conversation as of yet. And as these perspectivists like to joke, the revolution made, was made of a series of couples who lived, plotted, and resisted together. There are stories to be told by Simone Lelouch, Fauzia Sharfi, Dalila and Leila Ben Othman, and many others, not as a supporting cast, but for the value of their own trajectories. And there's been some progress lately. In a recently published book by the association Zemnubia titled Bneta Siasa, Certain testimonies have been collected that talk about this experience within the movement. And then in February 2020, a special meeting of the Instance Vérité et Dignité was devoted solely to the female perspectivist militants. In their testimonies, they evoked their youthful aspirations for freedom, autonomy, opposition to the regime's dalliances with imperialism and Bourguiba's authoritarian methods. Zainab bin Said, Rauda Garbi, Zainab Sharni, and others faced the regime's wrath for years, even after their release, as one of them reminisces, she says. With a baby in my arms, we lived on the margins of society until 1980. No private school wanted to hire me. No newspaper gave me any job except Democratie, where I arranged with the director to only sign with my initials. We became untouchables. These testimonies will one day come to enrich a growing literature of memoirs, including those that we have seen since 2011 from female writers, as the literary scholar Rania Saeed discussed recently, including the notable uh, memoir from Lina Ben-Mahni's Tunisian Girl, Ben Mahmoud's fictive memoir Imra'at fi Zaman al-Thawra, and many others. They draw the reader in by revolving around the events of 2011, but then they take the opportunity to talk about their lives from childhood to adulthood, showing the possibilities of this genre for Tunisian history. Finally, these memoirs tell me about the particular rhythm of the past and the present in Tunisia. In other words, how do people, concretely speaking, decide to write a memoir and send it out to the public? A very intimate act. 
The first wave from Naqash and Berhaj Yahya were closely tied to the revival of perspective memory in the mid-2000s. Larbi Shwicha tells us that when two members passed away suddenly, Ahmed Uthmani and Nurdin bin Khidr, this spurred the others to organize theater plays, exposition gatherings, and it revived those past friendships. Soon after, the Tamimi Foundation brought together former militants around a roundtable, and they shared their stories. In other cases, the jolts were more painful. There was the death of an infamous torturer around the time reported in the press, which evoked many painful feelings and that confronted the urge to confront this painful past. For 20 years, the Perspective movement was an episode of Tunisian history kept quiet, and it was about to be brought back. Similarly, my discussion today has envisaged the way that 2011 may have played a similar role for these leftists and others who will seek to tell their stories around silenced moments of the country's history, such as the Black Thursday riots of 78, the bread riots of the 80s, but also along the way to tell the very ordinary stories that made them in the process. And here I'd like to shift gears a little bit as I near the end. These were my ongoing thoughts. Moving at the slow rhythm of each newly published memoir or novel released by these perspectivists. And then 2020 came to put this slow process into stark relief and remind us that we are living on borrowed time. This year has created a shock, but it also has highlighted another dimension of these memoirs that I had neglected up to then. Their impact on the process of mourning. Over the past year of the pandemic, news of the mounting cases of infections in North Africa has often been tainted with a sense of foreboding, a concern that the medical infrastructures in these countries were simply insufficient. And then adding to that the inability to travel, visit relatives, or even just to be able to loiter in one's favorite cafes, back home, terraces, and bookstores. 2020 has been an annus horribilis when it comes to the death of many but we only make sense of them through the passing of those we know, be it through the virus itself or other circumstances. The pandemic has been processed through the tragic news of the likes of former socialist Tunisian minister Ahmed bin Salah, the former socialist Moroccan prime minister Abdelrahman Yusfi, or even younger figures, the Tunisian blogger and journalist Lina Benhani and the popular deuxième journalist in Morocco, Salahdin Romari. But then, came the steady news of the passing of people that were closer, older members of the Maghrebi intelligentsia. The Algerian sociologist Ali Al-Kins, Nabil Qadir Lakjar, the Moroccan radical painter Mohamed Malahi, and Nourdin Sail, the godfather of Moroccan cinema. Giselle Halimi, the Franco-Tunisian lawyer, and Albert Memni, the Franco-Tunisian anti-colonial writer, both departed this summer. And then in the outskirts of Tunis, the long-standing head of Tunisian sociology, Abdullah Bouhdiba, made his goodbyes as well. Alongside these celebrated figures were many others. Remembered in social media posts by their colleagues, they were university professors, directors of departments, journals, friends, family members. Each announcement adding more weight to this costly year on the eve of our celebrations for the last decade of Arab freedom. And then I take a step back and ask myself, what does it mean when older members of the intelligentsia pass away? Each one represents a tragic loss to the immediate family, the friends, the surroundings, but also beyond that. And I'm reminded of a quote attributed to the Malian writer Amadou Hampatiba, who says, 
When an elder dies, a library burns to the ground. It was sad to consider the invisible impact that the pandemic would have on the Maghreb's already fledgling cultural and intellectual life. But with the frequency of these announcements came articles from colleagues and friends. I noticed that certain common features started to return. And they allowed me to sketch a portrait of this intellectual generation from far. These were the unassuming and hardworking types. They were remembered by their colleagues for their steadfast commitment to their disciplines. These scholars represented the institutions of knowledge that were set up after independence, who worked oftentimes despite the scarcity of means while deploying creative approaches along the way. They stayed as much as they could in their home countries fighting until they were threatened as the Algerians experienced. They were also part of this generation of independence, the nation builders who matured in the 60s and 70s onwards. And today, through the mere passing of time, have reached an advanced age. Those leaving, taking with them perhaps the ideology of national development alongside with their memories of the past decades. And I return again to the main question. What do these passings mean for the younger Maghribis, especially those of us who are hoping to rewrite our histories? This is a question that will need to be answered progressively in the coming months and years. There are conversations we should be having. One did not need to know or have met these people to feel sadness and grieve their passing. It came to accompany and enhance the news of the passing of a distant aunt that would host me in Tunis and scold me if I came back too late, or an uncle who passed away as well, far from his country and his family, leaving memories of childhood at the beach in Laraish. What is certain already from my remarks is that these events add another layer to the memoirs. They leave a material trace, the memoirs, and a testimony with which we can enter in a dialogue even after its authors have departed. It gives a feeling of a suspended time on these pages. And in closing, this brings me back to Gilbert Nakash. On the 28th of December, I received news of his passing. His sister had departed recently as well, and he was in poor health conditions himself. Yet news of his passing came as a jolt, so close to the 10-year anniversary of the revolution. In the previous weeks and months, he remained present and vocal on his social media account where he would write essay-length messages that showed very little softening of his fiery views with age. News of his passing was met with a considerable outpouring of solidarity and loss, including a touching homage by Fatih ibn Hajj Yahya, who remembered their time in prison together when he first acquired the courage to call him Papi. Having never met him or shared those meaningful experiences with him, it was through the memoirs that I made sense of the news. Two questions remained in closing. How does one mourn the man when the memoirs remain? And did the process of mourning start earlier, without knowing, when the book first hit the press and when I first opened the pages? Then my thoughts dwelled on the others we lost this year, the visible and the invisible ones whose stories may have never been told, and then the weight of lost dawns on me. In conclusion, these have been some of my thoughts on the function of writing one's own history at a historic time, but also what it means to see history as a place to seek oneself. Are these excessive expectations? The memoirs of leftists that came out in the past decade were part of a broader recovery of the past. Tunisians saw in their everyday lives through events on television and in social media, as well as in bookstores. 
These stories start to challenge the structure of Tunisian history. Traditionally written around the state and Woodgivism, they have now introduced a certain counter-narrative quality that open up a possibility for democratizing the past and the present. Whether they were consciously willed to play this role, or they simply came from a desire to be recognized and remembered, these memoirs offer us the building bricks to write a new history and shape new values for the Tunisian national community. At the same time, perhaps it would be unfair to place such high expectations on memory. What about memory for its own sake? 10 years on from discovering these memoirs for the first time, this is what I'm starting to believe. Those readings help younger generations of Maghribis enter in a dialogue with their predecessors, their parents' generation, and to reestablish this intergenerational understanding that should form the basis of any national community. They demystify the past, they tell us about their past dreams, their aspirations, the difficulties they face, and they help us contextualize those of the present. This is why the great numbers of those who passed away in 2020 has hit so hard and meant so much. The memoir offers a way to capture all those fleeting conversations one may never have had, stories that needed to be told and that only became valued in the twilight of their journeys. One memoir comes to symbolize collective guilt and the powerlessness of reversing time. Those short books illustrate the necessary act of mourning that is part of the cycle of history and community for the past to let the present become the future. And I'll close with, with this. Recently, the actor Keanu Reeves went on the American night show host, Stephen Colbert's show. The agitated host was trying hard to engineer a sort of a soundbite from the notoriously reserved and pensive actor. And then he asked him, what do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? To which he responded after a short pause and a deep breath, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. After a brief pause, the visibly shaken host composed himself and ushered in the next segment. The show or the revolution must go on. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CEMAT newsletter at www.cematmaghrib.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.